0: Hello, and welcome to historical true crime, the podcast, where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie. And today is episode 38. We have quite an interesting episode and a bit of a departure for this podcast today. We're not covering a serial killer or an unsolved murder. We're going to be looking into an executioner, really a family of executioners Today's episode is all about Albert Pierrepoint. Albert Pierrepoint hung a record number of individuals between 1932 and 1956. Although the precise number is still unclear, popular estimates place it around 435 people. But the man himself once asserted it was as high as 550. As a young child, he was inspired by his father and his uncle, both of whom were executioners. And he would even help his uncle in the early stages of his career. But before we dive into Albert and his family history of executions, I want to start by talking about the history of executions and executioners. According to Moffat in his article for Lang's live, Since the beginning of time, the executioner has played a fascinating role in society. Executors lived on the periphery during the early modern period, between 1500 and 1750, and they were viewed as exiles from the community, despite being necessary to uphold the law. Nonetheless, they're considered some kind of weird evil in the community. They were physically outsiders because they lived outside of the town and were tasked with clearing the streets of dead animals and people as part of their daily responsibilities. In those days, there was no life sentence for crimes. Instead, you're given a brief period in jail as you awaited trial before being either found not guilty, fined, subjected to physical punishment, given the death penalty, or more frequently, deported to the colonies. In the contemporary era, punishment took on a penal connotation. Things got more organized when prisons were built, and regulations governing prison sentences are implemented. But by 1776, America had broken away from the British Empire, and its citizens were openly uprising. Therefore, the British government was no longer able to have their criminal justice system outsourced to America. By 1800, 220 different crimes, many of which included stealing property, could result in the death penalty. The statutes were given the posthumous label, the Bloody Code, due to the high increase in executions. And it's by this time that executioner is a legitimate career rather than just a status in the community. Executions were now carried out in private as a necessary form of retribution by trained professionals. A cobbler from Lincolnshire named William Marwood persuaded the government of the Lincolnshire Gal to let him carry out the hanging in 1872 using a novel technique he had developed known as the long drop method. The perpetrator, a 28-year-old man named William Frederick Horry, shot his wife with a revolver. He would be the first person to die using the long drop technique, in which the victim's neck would be snapped by the impact at the bottom of the drop rather than slowly dying by asphyxiation. At this point, the art of the executioner was established because the long drop execution technique was founded on the meticulous measurements of the guilty party, The length of the rope needed to hang the culprit depended on the offender's body, weight, and height, both of which needed to be taken into consideration. The official table of drops, which relates the condemned person's weight to the length of the rope, needed to generate at least 1,000 pounds of force, enough to break the neck on impact, was first established. Fewer crimes were punishable by death during the 19th century as a result of the Death Act of 1823, which allowed judges the authority to commute the death penalty for all crimes other than murder and treason. Only five crimes were capital offenses now—murder, treason, espionage, violent piracy, and arson in royal dockyards. So that's a brief history of the role of the executioner in society. So let's turn now to the dynasty of the Pierre Points. The first hangman in the family was Henry Pierrepoint. While working as a butcher in Manchester, he wrote to the Home Office on numerous occasions to volunteer his services. No one really knows what inspired him to pursue this line of work. But we do know that the Home Office demanded that the men who worked as an executioner were typically married, well-established, and polite. They needed to stay to themselves and couldn't be ostentatious or outgoing. Henry got his wish in 1901 and became James and William Billington's assistant. He kept on working with the brothers until around 1905, when he was appointed the UK's chief executioner. By this time, executions in Great Britain were so few compared to earlier decades that the pay for executioners was no longer significant. Therefore, executioners had to take up other lines of work. Thomas was invited to join the business by Henry. Thomas was Henry's brother and a considerably more prolific and accomplished executioner, despite an early reluctance to join the profession. After arguing with his assistant in Kelmsford prison, Henry was removed from Great Britain's list of executioners in July, 1910. According to reports, he was intoxicated and Henry would pass away in 1922, but not before inspiring his young son to carry on his legacy. The third child and oldest son of Mary and Henry Pierpoint, Albert, is born on March 30, 1905 in Clayton, West Riding of Yorkshire, England. And in 1917, the family relocated from Huddersfield in the West Riding of Yorkshire to Falesworth in the greater Lancashire area close to Oldham. 11-year-old Albert would declare in his school essay, that he intended to follow in the footsteps of his father and uncle, who were both official executioners, after he learned about his father's history as a hangman in 1916. He would drop out of school to work at the nearby Marlborough Mill when his father got sick, and he eventually worked as a drayman for a wholesale grocer. After seeing his father's notes, diaries, notebooks, outlining his time as a hangman after his death in 1922, Albert is more determined than ever to become an executioner. By 1930, he had acquired the skills to become a lorry driver and finally rose to the position of manager at the grocer. According to famouspeople.com on April 19, 1931, Albert sends a letter to the Prison Commission requesting a position as an assistant executioner, and it's six months later that he'll receive a call for an interview. Before officially joining as an assistant executioner in late September 1932, he had three days of training at Pentonville Prison in London. When Patrick McDermott was put to death at Dublin's Mountjoy Prison, Thomas, his uncle, was given the option of selecting his own assistant and Albert received his first execution job as a result. Patrick was a farmer who had murdered his brother. Albert carried out his duties, which included bringing the prisoner to the scaffold and tying his legs together prior to the execution. He continued to work in the grocery industry during the 1930s and assisted his uncle, who had a significant impact on him. He pushed himself ahead for the job of head executioner in July 1940 by assisting recently promoted lead executioner Stanley Cross with accurate measurements for the drop length prior to executions. Albert himself would become a lead executioner shortly after. According to Conleaf for an article for headstuff.org, Albert carried out his first execution as head executioner in 1941. Antonio Mancini, a prominent East End gangster, was the prisoner. Antonio had stabbed a man out of what he claimed was self-defense, and had anticipated receiving only a manslaughter verdict. But it soon became obvious that the government's intention was to crack down on war profiteers, along with Antonio's status as an undergrime crime boss became the main reasons for his death sentence. Albert noted that Antonio said, Cheerio! as the lever was pulled, indicating he may have accepted his fate. Albert's second execution would be significantly more complicated. Czech national, Carol Richter, attempted to cross the border into Germany to be with his girlfriend and son in America, but he was apprehended and imprisoned. He accepted the Germans' offer to serve as a spy in order to have his sentence reduced. After receiving brief training, he was dropped into England with the mission of finding another spy who the Germans believed had been duped. Unfortunately, his total and utter lack of skill resulted in his quick arrest, and following a military trial, he was given the death penalty. Carroll would make life very challenging for Albert, since he was determined to die as a man. Carol repeatedly ran headfirst into a wall when the guards would enter his cell, and when they did detain him, he broke his bonds and attacked them. He was eventually overpowered by four guards, who then led him to the gallows where he was bound hand and foot, with a noose around his neck and a hood over his head. But Carol would attempt to jump as soon as Albert pulled the lever, but was unsuccessful. The noose ended up hooking around... Carol's nose under the hood. Fortunately for Albert, he had precisely calculated the length of the rope. So the impact to Carl's head was still sufficient to break his neck and kill him. The next chapter of Albert's executioner career is perhaps what he's best known for. After World War II ended and the Nuremberg trials began, an executioner was needed. The obvious candidate would have been his uncle, but he was 75 at the time and had already been declared essentially retired by the Home Office. Albert, therefore, takes a plane to Germany in December 1945. Those in charge of the Auschwitz and Belsen concentration camps are the subjects of the first trial at Nuremberg. Trials would be held for 45 men and women and 11 people would be given the death penalty. Two would join that group, Convicted of killing a captive RAF pilot, Albert would execute all of them by hanging. Albert received a sizable payout for his work in Germany, and with the money, he and his wife Annie are able to purchase a pub in Hollingwood, a town outside of Manchester. Tourists would even come to drink beer with the official executioner who had hung the Nazis. Now, Albert would experience one of the most challenging executions of his career in 1950. He arrived at Manchester's Strangeways Prison to hang James Corbett for the savage murder of his girlfriend. Although he didn't know or recognize the man's name, he immediately recognized James when he saw him as one of his own pub regulars. Later, he learned that Corbett had even drunk at his pub before returning home, to murder his girlfriend. Accounts do vary, but some claim that it's at this point that Albert really starts to think about retiring. But he'll continue to work as a hangman for another five years, putting to death notorious murderers like serial killer John Christie and Timothy Evans, who was hung in error for one of Christie's killings before new evidence was discovered and Christie was apprehended. But people's attitudes toward the death penalty were also changing. In 1954, Albert would hang his last man, Michael Manning, a murderer and rapist who had been given the death penalty in the Republic of Ireland. And in 1955, he executed Ruth Ellis, the last person to be given the death penalty for a woman. Many believe that her attitude in court, was purposefully intended to ensure that she received the death penalty. And this perception contributed to the controversy surrounding the execution for the murder of her lover. Albert would leave his position in February, 1956 and spend the following few years operating his pub, the Rose and Crown. In 1965, the final hanging would take place in the United Kingdom. And in 1974, Nine years later, Albert wrote his autobiography, the bestseller, Executioner Pierre Point, and it's still in print today. Albert acknowledges in the book's conclusion that despite never thinking the hangings he carried out were unfair, he had grown to believe that the death penalty did not serve as an effective deterrent to criminals. In his book, he wrote, quote, it is said to be a deterrent. I cannot agree. There have been murders since the beginning of time and we shall go on looking for deterrence until the end of time. I've come to the conclusion that execution solved nothing and are only an antiquated relic of a primitive desire for revenge, which takes the easy way and hands over responsibility for revenge to other people, which is a really interesting perspective coming from someone whose entire career was on executing people. But according to DeLong, for ForAllThat'sInteresting.com, Albert may have changed his opinion because barely two years after the book's release, he said in a radio interview with the BBC that he thought crime in Britain had only increased since the death penalty had been abolished and that his nation might need to reinstate the death penalty to address the issue. So even a man who spent his entire life in executions had a pretty complicated relationship or perspective on them. Clearly he was conflicted, but Albert and Annie were able to retire in Southport due to with the autobiography's success. And it's there that Albert will peacefully live out his golden years. On July 10, 1992, Albert will pass away in a Southport, England nursing home. There's no mention of the cause of death, but there's no reason to suspect it was anything but uh, natural causes by 1998. No offenses in the United Kingdom would still carry the death penalty. The days of the hangman were officially over after his death. Christie's auction house held a crime and punishment sale and brought in 36,000 pounds for his execution book which had a record of every hanging he had ever performed a hangman's rope was among the other objects sold and it would sell for 4,800 albert's face was even cast in plaster as a death mask and it sold for 4,550 And that brings us to the end of the life of Albert Pierre Point, The Last Hangman. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historical true crime pod or by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.